You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by APRO. I'm Helen Garrett, University Registrar and Chief Officer of Enrollment Information Services at the University of Washington, and this is FERPA in the 21st Century. Hello, and welcome to For the Record. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and this is FERPA in the 21st Century. I'm very fortunate to be joined today by Helen Garrett, University Registrar and Chief Officer of Enrollment Information Services at the University of Washington and resident FERPA expert. Helen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us about FERPA. You've heard of FERPA, right? You know, I really have, and I really love it. Uh, don't let it freak <laughs> me out. And uh, my, my kids grew up understanding the word FERPA, and they're in their high 20s now. So yeah, I, 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 I really groove on FERPA. I love it a lot. <laughs> That's not a common reaction when someone says FERPA in a room, though. That FERPA doesn't get a lot of affection from many end users. So just as a lightning round, this is not a FERPA training, but I do think that we should do a quick review of some of the key principles of FERPA. Yeah. So what we want to remember about the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act of 1974, when I was 10, is it's really designed to protect the student. And I think we lose track of that. So it's about the student who qualifies at an institution and is uncovered by this law under the Department of Education. And when it comes down to it, there are just three basic truths. It's the right for the student to have access to their records, the right to have uh, control to a certain extent over who sees their records, and a right to register a complaint if they have some concerns. So basically, it's just a set of guidelines for those of us, anyone who has access to student records, to be able to know how to carefully be the custodian of them. And in the end, if someone cries foul for FERPA, it is the student, and it's just their ability to protect their student records while they're attending an institution higher education and beyond. Thank you very much. That was very succinct. I appreciate that. What (laughs) What kinds of challenges with applying FERPA in the 21st century have you seen recently? I think we run the gamut of people having no idea what it is, especially um, with all due respect, faculty crowds, that it sounds like some strange tropical disease, or they see it as something that is preventing them from doing what they need to do because of, and this is now 10 years ago, or actually 12 years ago, because of things like the Virginia Tech shooting that still people say somehow FERPA, you know, caused it because people didn't feel like they could say something. What I see more often than not is that people are actually um, frozen by it, afraid. Um, I see FERPA be held responsible for things it has nothing to do with. And and I actually see people kind of weaponize it. So if they don't want to give someone information, even if they have a legitimate reason to do so, they might say, oh, can't for FERPA. What has complicated it um, now in this 21st century is the ease by which data can move around. So if you contextualize this back to 1974, again, I was in fourth grade, there was no email, there were no computers filled rooms, there was no ability to send a large file on your phone that could have all the grades and records of everybody in your class. Right. So I think what's really challenging us is the ease at which and the way that we send data Where I spend the majority of my time in FERPA, and I spend a lot of time on this at my institution and in training nationally, but mostly is 
making sure that you're not going to have an accidental release because that's happening all the time because people are so anxious to send information around. Mostly it happens in emails that start out to be about a student and then two weeks later they're about a process redesign and someone forgets that the student's information is buried deep in there. And then the other area that I spend a great deal of time with is data sharing agreements. Uh, we all, uh, certainly in the registrar profession as well as others, depend so much more on third-party software companies and the whole idea of is the student's data in the cloud and what does that mean and is it in the data sharing agreement and is Google FERPA compliant? So I think the ease at which data moves around and how quickly and, and even you know individuals can send things around and where is our data are probably the two greatest challenges and the things I respond to most now. Yeah, you used a phrase there, weaponized FERPA, which I found really, <laughs> which I found really interesting. At many institutions, people have a misconception of FERPA, and so as you said, it prevents them from, or they use it as an excuse to prevent sharing of information in legitimate ways. Have you experienced situations where? people have known about FERPA and have blatantly ignored FERPA? Let's say it's at hypothetical you. Yeah. I, um, so do I think there are situations where people know of FERPA, they may not know the law, and they may know that they don't have the right to share information, but they feel like they can justify it. And, and one of the things I like to say in my trainings is the law is agnostic to the value of the proposition for sharing information. So whether it's a good reason to share it or it's a poor reason to share it, the law doesn't care. You still have to be able to go back to what I call that DNA of the release. How will you be able to prove that the student either gave permission for us to share that or it was a legitimate educational interest and a need to know between two different school officials to do that? Right. So right. I actually don't come across a lot of cases where people just say, you know, forget FERPA, I'm going to do this. But I do have a lot of circumstances where people <laughs> might say, well, I needed to share this information because otherwise these students wouldn't have been able to find out this about the scholarship. And I had to be able to identify people that were undocumented because the scholarship is only for people who are undocumented. And so I'll say, you know, let me come in and help you be in compliance with FERPA, but you can't just throw all, you know, caution to the wind because the purpose is good to do that. So I really don't think that there are people out there who are violating. Um, I had a circumstance last week where um, someone who has access to our student database was checking her son's grades and attendance. She knows better, that's not okay. And that's where you have that refreshing right. conversation to say, mm, that's actually a violation of our policies and rules here, let alone you don't get to do that. But I do wanna say that I think that's what makes people so afraid of FERPA is because actually they're not setting out to violate it. You know, it's not a speed law, but they're so afraid about what if they didn't know the speed was 10 because they thought it was 40 and they're going to get a ticket to use that metaphor. Right. So I think it's more me coming in, simplifying it as best as I can in the training and just getting them back to basics so they can just understand how to keep themselves out of trouble. But, but again, I, I, don't, I don't think that there are people who are pur purposely doing it. I do think in this day and age that information is power. And especially as we are emaciated in our budgets, even at our own institution, the University of Washington, we've got departments fighting for the same students. And so sometimes people feel like 
well, if I give you information about students and for this reason, what if you write to them and get them to come be in your program? So there could be a little of that. And that's what I talk about weaponizing. Yeah. And that's where I often have to come in and kind of referee to say, well, technically, if there's a legitimate educational interest, you could do that or not. Got it. How often do you deliver FERPA training on your campus and in what forms does it take? I would say I'm at about one to two times a week right now. Um, So I am, uh, and and this is a huge institution and I'm coming into my senior year. Um, So I've worked my way through last summer, all of health sciences. I'm now making my way through engineering. Um, And typically I am coming to some kind of staff meeting And what I do is I have a slide deck that I send out that's ginormous and it has everything (laughs) about basics and a whole bunch of scenarios. So I send a slide deck so so my host can display it when I'm there. And then I have a PDF that they send to their attendees ahead of time. Um, I just did a training on Monday for program coordinators in Montana who host uh, medical, four-year medical students in clerkships. Wow. And so we did it by Zoom and getting them to understand that I, even though they work for a hospital, they actually have access to student records and have to know how to do FERPA. Right on. So I, I might be there for five minutes. I might be there for an hour, but I get myself invited all over the place. I probably have uh, just in this month alone, six more I'm going to do next week. No, probably next week, the end of the week, but between now and the end of the school year, at least six more that I'm doing. And so what I do and I, and I tell my colleagues to do is watch for those opportunities when someone asks a question or one of our professional schools, one of the professors has decided to be a good idea to put up all of their law students, sorry, one of their students' pictures and their schedules. Oh. So when that comes to my attention, oh. I don't just stop and say, no, you can't do that per FERPA. But then I said, hey, professional school, did you know that I'd be willing to come to one of your train, your faculty meetings and just give a little brief uh, refresher? And I get invited all the time. And now that people know that I'm not the FERPA police. Right. And usually like when I'm in, when I was meeting with electrical engineers, that was really intimidating. I'm like, I have no idea what you do. I'm glad you do. But I know everything about FERPA. So you spend time teaching our students how to do electrical engineering and let me take care of your FERPA needs. And so... To me, I use a lot of metaphors, as the listeners are now going to figure out, but it's about getting the cat to jump up on the couch. So if I can go out in a friendly way and say, let me help you navigate this law, I'm going to get the cat to come up that the next time when there's a problem or a question, they're going to ask me a question. And that every school I've ever been to, that's what's happening because they trust. I'm not out to get them. I'm out to support them. Yeah, it's building those relationships and letting them know both that you are a source of knowledge and a resource for them and then facilitating those questions and conversations should a need arise. I love that. That is also a very impressive training schedule. That's a lot. Have you done that everywhere you've been? Is that common for you to do? It is common, but before coming here, I was at a community college for 16 years. So after a while, I'd kind of done the big trainings. Um, So what I would say is, depending on your resources and actually depending on your personality, a lot of people who are registrars are not the extroverts that I am. I have not a single inhibition gene (laughs) in my body. That may not be a place of comfort, right? But I know schools that will do a monthly registrar-hosted forum where people can come and they can, you know, just ask questions about that. I would say, depending on your school, you should at least be getting out 
you know, once a quarter or once a semester to, to reach out. I've also encouraged people to eke out FERPA in bite-sized pieces. Now, I don't have a method to do this at the University of Washington, but I definitely did it at my community college where in our, we had a daily newsletter, e- newsletter that came out. And I would just give a little sentence of a, did you know? Did you know under FERPA what a sole possession record is? So that they could just get little bits at a time without feeling this fire hose of being overwhelmed. Yeah, and sort of become gradually acquainted with more and more of it. Yeah. yeah. And when and every time I would say, want to know more about FERPA? Invite me to a staff meeting, you know, so that they could know that I would come out there to do that. Nice. It's also, I would say, for those listeners who may be new to their institution, maybe they've been, wrote, been promoted into the registrar position um, or, or otherwise a first-time registrar, it's a fabulous way to get to relationship build, as you said earlier, with your campus, especially your faculty. So I become a trusted resource that they know to call so that when I do have to call about a problem, I'm seen as a friendly and, and as opposed to a foe, right? right? So it's a really easy way to get yourself out onto campus, get out of your office and get your brand out there as a university registrar or director of enrollment services, whatever you might be, so that they see you as a resource that you are. Let's talk a little bit, you mentioned as one of the challenges, let's talk a little bit about all of the various places that the student record can be stored these days. And student records, as they qualify under FERPA, are maintained by the institution. They contain personally personally identifiable information about a student. And so we have expanded, we, higher education, have expanded where we are storing these records. As you referenced also way, way back, we had file cards. We had, you know, literal pieces of paper that we would file away. And now we have vendor sourced solutions. We have holy cloud solutions. How are we to get our arms around dealing with the protection, the security of those records, but also their appropriate disclosure? And then if a student requests to review their academic record, how to go about producing all of those various things. What are your thoughts on, on that? Right. So just as an antidote, we are renovating a front counter in my very old building that goes back to the 1940s. And there is this counter in this little plastic like sleeve thing. And I, I never knew what it was, but it is where when the lady would bring out the one piece of paper uh, transcript she would need to slip it under the little glass thing so that no one would get it mussed up and the student couldn't walk away with it. And there was a story about a student who didn't like a grade and they literally stole their transcript and they lost all their classes because that was the only place that it was recorded. That's amazing. So compare that to where we are now. Interestingly enough, because we, um, I have sitting, my assistant has seven FERPA requests right now that have come in this week alone and, and subpoenas. Um, it's kind of funny because we we actually don't have archival documents in the way. Like there's really, unless you print it out, there's no piece of paper transcript. It's all sitting in our student databases. Um, so when we do a FERPA request, um, it's challenging because we're really going after emails. And I am more concerned about the email as a student record because we all know that when we send an email, we have to invite all of our closest friends in the next six miles away to be on that email. Yep. And so an email that, first of all, email wasn't even there again back in the beginning. 
So the transcript itself is just a report that you print out of a database. And so it is in the database and it's a collection of fields and tables. But it's those emails that we're having to go after and ask departments, okay, everybody in your department, look and see if you have anything about John Smith. And then we're getting back 3,000 copies of an email that have gone all over the place to do that. So I think that's the biggest challenge. We have run into situations, and I train faculty and staff all the time, that if you are using social media um, or you're using your phone and their text messages and those are recoverable, those are student records. And so we're having to get screenshots and things off of people's phones. And I'm always warning faculty and staff, if you use your personal devices and it gets subpoenaed, do you want us to see that browser history? Because people don't realize that when students' records are out there on phones, audio files. Um, and then when you start thinking about what's out there in the cloud, the, the thing that just cracks me up is when you're talking to a partner, a vendor who are very important to us, and they might say, oh, oh, you know, Handshake, which is a fabulous tool that we're using for the Career Center, might say, well, don't worry, you know, we, we, you keep all your files localized and, and we can't see them. I'm like, okay, what if there's a problem with our software? Well, we'll come in and fix it and then you can see student records. Well, yeah, but we would only do that if we come in there. So that exemplifies that there are records everywhere and, and they last forever. One of the reasons I feel very strongly about not putting student code um, of conduct indicators on a transcript is that you can no longer control the shelf life of a transcript anymore because it could have been mailed to 12 different people. It could be sent out there. So it is pretty unwieldy. Um, but that for that reason, I when I'm coaching folks on how to really navigate this, I have my procurement, uh, the lead of our procurement office that handles all the new contracts coming in for third-party softwares on speed dial. Nice. And she knows to be watching any of the contracts coming in, and she gets them to me. I look at it first with my layperson FERPA eyes, and then I'm bouncing that right over to my attorney general um, to take a look at that. So going to the source where people are trying to buy these things and making all kinds of promises of what can or cannot be used. Um, recently, someone wanted to be able to use MailChimp to be able to send out emails. Right. But when I dug into the contract, it's not for book compliant. Um, so I don't just leave her hanging. I try to come up with another solution for her. So it, it is like trying to get a drop of water out of the ocean um, because you just don't know that you're going to get it back. Right. And it's so big. Right. But it doesn't have to, um, you know, put us into a place of fear or terror. We just have to be smart about what are those systems and to make sure that when decisions are made, that we as a university registrar, or again, director of enrollment services, whatever it might be, are at the table to, to be that voice of um, um, warning or help, I guess, with FERPA. Yeah. And that gets back to the relationship building piece of this as well, is you have to be able to be... Uh, invited to the table in order to have those conversations at the appropriate time. And, you know, that's a challenge at some institutions, um, but it's worth putting in that effort up front uh, to avoid downstream negativity, things turning out poorly. Yeah. And, you know, at our campus, which is a, a huge campus, as we were bringing in the European Union's GDPR, which is all about how we're um, protecting student data when someone was in the European Union when they entered it, um, it's really pushed the, the people to the edge um, because they don't have the resources necessarily to deal with that. And that gets big and scary because there are big fines with that. But what I talk to people a lot about now is we've moved beyond the FERPA law, which is can we? 
to should we. So an example, so I wanna caution people that to be thinking about privacy, and here's an example. So I was working with an outside vendor that wanted to collect information on our students to do a housing survey because it's getting so expensive in Seattle. And they wanted to be able to ask um, if students were undocumented. And so they knew enough that with FERPA that if they asked the student that question and the student provided the information, what a student provides is not subject to FERPA, so that would be okay. But we came back to say, well, yes, that would be okay with FERPA, but we as a university think that's a privacy issue and we don't want you to ask that question. Right. So just keep in mind that that's really changing this whole conversation about not just can I and will I be compliant with the law, but should I? Right. <laughs> well, they are stopped at the light. So let's keep talking. Let's it's fantastic. I, I think it's ironic, too, that you used an example of undocumented students and then the siren came in the background. <laughs> you might want to leave yeah, that one there. Well, and, and let me let me throw this in there. You know, I, I have a, a term I use when I'm working with people asking for data, whether it's to facilitate research or assessment or what they what they can share. And I talk about the big eight. And the big eight are the things that I really want people to think carefully about who does have access. And I won't be able to name them perfectly, but it's things like veteran status, um, international status in terms of visa, undocumented, ethnicity, gender. Another term that's coming up all the time is gender at birth, which none of us capture that. Right. So I, I caution them to think about just because the law allows you to share information, you just have to have that point of sensitivity is, but should I? And, and someone could say, well, you have to under FERPA. No, actually, we don't. Right. FERPA um, is a may, one, not a must. You, we exactly. may disclose mm -hmm. it. We, we do not. We cannot be compelled to disclose it except under certain situations, response to a subpoena, right. court order, et cetera. Yeah. And things like social security numbers, you know, yes, I could have that shared to our financial aid office because that's how they match records at the Department of Education. But that is actually uh, um, one that you're not to be sharing, and it's actually going to put students at risk if you do that, and it gets compromised in the transition. Yep. I agree. One area in particular that we haven't touched on um, that I am curious about is our learning management systems. And a secondary piece is more and more institutions are using a CRM for academic advising. And so those advising notes as well. If you have any thoughts on the information that's stored in an LMS, I am assuming that that is a student record governed by FERPA. It's not a sole propriety, proprietary record. Right. But any thoughts on sort of governance of LMS data if it differs in any way than any other student record? Sure. Well, just keeping in mind that a student record is anything associated with the student that you are maintaining at the institution. So certainly any records pertaining to students as you define them um, in your learning management system, anything that might be, we have something called an electronic advising record system. Those are all subject to FERPA and to be protected. And uh, Leroy Rucker and I, who is now at ACRO, who everyone knows is, is the head and the, one of the longest lead experts on FERPA, um, we go round and round on this one because I think the letter of the law um, with FERPA puts us in a bind, and maybe they just couldn't have thought of this back in 1974. But with learning record, uh, learning management systems, 
the challenge is that you're not supposed to be showing students who are in another class with another class. Now, we know that you can't be anonymous anymore in a learning environment in terms of you can see who else is in your class. But the way that we offer classes at our institutions are not that crisp and clean. Uh, we might have a biochemistry class where it's a certain section of biology, another one chemistry, and we can't not let them see each other. So that line can get blurred because we feel like we're being told that they're, you're not supposed to share a roster with another class. Same thing with advisors. It is not practical um, at uh, most institutions to limit um, an advisor to only see their students for the reason that there's fluidity in terms of who goes to see advisors. Right, so and changing majors and things like I've, that. Majors, yeah, because, okay, maybe if you have an institution where I absolutely am assigned an advisor, fine, but that's just not how it works. And it also is, is not realistic that if someone changes to a new program that then you have to go in and change your system. And I know that that's what the 2009 updates really said is that you just have to make sure that if you are providing access to someone to see student data, do they have a legitimate educational interest and a need to know? So when I'm asked those questions, I just say, Anyone who is in the LMS and has access to student data, the same as within your advising systems, have they been FERPA trained? Do they understand their rights and responsibilities with that information? And if they do harm, then you stop them and have a retraining and refresher. But we can't let FERPA get in the way of getting our work done. And so I have come along as <laughs> it's kind of funny because I am kind of known, I guess, as a FERPA expert. I'm pretty liberal with this because I'm going to go to a place to say we've got to help our students get across that finish line as fast as possible. And to have a law make it so I can't get in to see information when I need it, that's not what it was intended to be. That doesn't make sense. But at the same time, um, where we get, I get asked a lot with Canvas, our learning management system, is there might be a visiting professor and they want to make, uh, give access to that professor to everyone in the class. And I'm probably going to look at that and say, why do they need to have that? Can you not extract out a list for them? So you still need to be thinking about, again, who wants access and do they have a legitimate reason to have that? And that's what I love about this being such a, an ancient law, if you will, as, as much as I'm ancient, <laughs> I guess, is that um, it, it wasn't prescriptive. It didn't tell us anything about the medium by which we're storing the data. It just gives us those guidelines to make sure you're asking the right question because it comes back down to that accidental release and that FERPA breach. Can you defend, I've got my list of W questions, you know, why did someone ask me for information? Where do I, how do I, who do I know to, if I have to have permission? I mean, to make sure that if someone comes to you and said, why did you give that out? As long as you can defend and be in the line of FERPA, you're gonna be okay. Right on. I think that is a wonderful place to conclude our discussion of FERPA in the 21st century for today. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me and to share your thoughts and insights on FERPA in the 21st century with our listeners. So thank you very much. Yeah, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking. I'll talk about FERPA anytime, anywhere. Awesome. I'm going to include your <laughs> contact information in the show notes. And so I, I would Please not do. be surprised if people reach out and say, let's talk more about FERPA. Yeah, I, I, uh, I probably talk to about two or three people a week from around the country, too, just reaching out. And I love that because it just helps us be stronger in what we know. That's fantastic. Thanks again to Helen Garrett from the University of Washington for sharing her FERPA expertise with us today. And thank you for listening. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, forward it to a friend. Sign up for the mailing list for notifications about new episodes. Or let me know if you have an idea for an episode at registrarpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, thanks for listening to For the Record.